Hello, I'm Joan. I'm a Canadian family physician who also works as a restorative medical educator, facilitator, and coach. I create spaces that rehumanize the work of healthcare. I'm creating this podcast to remind myself, as well as anyone else working in a helping profession, that when you are working and caring for your human patients, you are the other human in the room. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of The Other Human in the Room. Um, If you can't tell by the click clicks and the background noise, I am driving in my van on the way to work again. So this is another episode of The Only Human in This Van. And um, today I have a topic that uh, I really, I feel the need to kind of unpack for myself and process for myself and as um, has really worked well for me um, with these episodes, um, processing it out loud is really valuable. And the idea that I'm recording it and that, you know, someone else may listen to it and connect with it, um, it's really valuable for, for me as well. And I, and I hope um, it helps you to hear kind of what I have going on in my brain and all that. Um, And in this case, um, I'm recording this on September 29th as I'm driving into work. And tomorrow um, in uh, the place where I live, that some call Canada, um, tomorrow, September 30th, is the Day of Truth and Reconciliation. It's actually uh, only the second time that this um, is a national day of recognition and commemoration. And um, uh, for those who aren't familiar or are not sure what that is, it's it's really about, okay, I'm about to say what I think it's really about. I am not the foremost expert at all, but just to say um, it's about, well, confronting, facing, and acknowledging the truth of what happened to the first people who lived on these lands, the lands that I'm driving on and work on and live on, um, to the Indigenous community who was here before my ancestors um, as settlers came, um, and what happened to the Indigenous communities when um, people from Europe uh, came and, um, you know, just caused a multitude of generations of harm, to say it somewhat succinctly, um, but certainly not comprehensively. Um, so that's the truth part is acknowledging that, acknowledging what happened, acknowledging the truth of the history of um, of this place that many call Canada, but also some don't, right? Um, and then the reconciliation, which is about um how do we how do we begin to take steps not to erase the past or undo the past you can it's happened that's what the truth is about but how do you move forward in a way that acknowledges the you know the genocides the cultural and literal genocides that have happened um and um and do a different way uh figure out a a different way to live together on land that, um, 
you know, the people who came here first, that were here first, never technically gave us permission to use and live on. So um, with that, as yeah, this is heavy stuff, right? And um, I had a, I had the deep honor and privilege of um, listening to the stories of two incredible Indigenous uh, women. Yesterday, I, I teach, um, I teach family medicine residents um, at McMaster University, um, and. Uh, an incredible physician, Dr. Karen Hill, and an incredible um, uh, psychotherapist, uh, Charity Fleming, and I am using their English names. Um, and I, as I drive, I am I am not familiar with their Indigenous names, so they also did share those with us yesterday. Um, they shared their stories, like their personal familial stories that that are then also speaking to the collective story of what happened to indigenous peoples and they talked about you know grandparents in residential schools and just really really painful stories of what happened to their family and family affected by 60 scoop family affected as um, missing and murdered indigenous women like the things that you hear in the headlines but for real, these two actual human beings, these incredible people, and their their literal family history, um, and it was a lot. I definitely teared up, and tears fell at certain points, and it was it was incredibly touching. And so then, for me, um, I think that the the piece of work that I have found the most helpful on actually taking in the stories and doing something about it is processing my emotions of, of and what I am what is coming up for me when I hear those stories and when I hear the collective stories of what you know my ancestors and the, um, the ancestors of anyone who is not indigenous on these lands um, what what we are participating in, you know, um, it can be really, really hard to actually look at and process and understand. And so then I noticed that what in the past, before I even really understood emotional processing, and when I, before I knew about my emotions and my body and really did some, you know, deep work on myself, my most common reaction would be to avoid it. And um, and certainly at times become quite defensive of it, like well, you know the sort of arguments that you do, that I still do hear from um, colleagues and you know people on the internet or whatever of like, I don't understand how this is my, you know I didn't personally do anything, you know kind of those things like that defensive mode, and then, so you know that coming first or like, as a piece of what can be, an initial reaction. Um, and if not processed, then you kind of get stuck in that and think that that's just sort of your identity and opinion for me. Um, and then sometimes instead of that, my reaction would be, this is too much. I'm overwhelmed. What can I possibly do? And so then I just check out and I, you know, stop reading. I, I scroll quickly past those headlines. I don't engage. I just totally avoid the whole issue because it's too painful. I don't know how to deal with it. I, what can I do, right? Like that whole thing. 
And then sometimes I am like driven to action. Like this, you know what? I can't be silent anymore. This is terrible. This is wrong. And then I'm immediately like driven to action and maybe do 50 million different actions haphazardly. And, and, but I, I still feel, I still, I feel so much like rage and energy. And then I'm really pissed at everyone else who's still being defensive or, or, or putting their heads in the sand. I'm like, what's wrong with these people? You know, like then I'm like really angry and fired up. And you know what? None of those reactions are wrong in the se- in, in the sense that I'm not saying that there are negative impacts to those reactions because there are, but I, all of those reactions are human. Okay. So if any of those are your reactions to me, like t- using terms like genocide and things of discussing whose land it is, if, if, if your reactions are like defensive, avoidant, or like um, sort of raging, I just want to honor that that means you're a human being with a human brain and you can keep any of those reactions if you want. But for me, I've noticed that all of those reactions like burn a bunch of energy. And um, even the last one, which has more activation behind it, I've noticed that like I burn out fast then and then I'm like back to being cynical. And now I'm just like hopeless, right? And that's sort of the final reaction is like, I tried, I did my best and it's hopeless. It's too hopeless, you know? Um, and the thing that's really shifted for me truly is understanding my emotions. I don't think I hear enough people connecting those and that's okay, but I have connected those and found it to be incredibly valuable because I really actually think that the fact that our society does not teach us about our emotions keeps the truth of our bodies and emotions and what they're there for and sells us lies about emotions and what they mean for you and that um you know showing emotion makes you weak or dangerous or unstable and you know um emotions are to be avoided emotions are to be controlled emotions are to be managed you know when i think about where else i hear words like you know repress control manage deal with the problem, you know, that, those are the verbs of um, colonialism. I am, I am a people who wants to take over another people because I think my way is better and I'm going to exert my power over them. It's like a little teeny mini version of the whole ethos of thinking that you deserve land when literally someone else is living on it. It's like, the same thing we're doing to our emotions because we think we have to, we think they're dangerous. We think they're wrong. And I mean, there's parallels here to literally like the horrific propaganda that, you know, settlers and colonizers, the way they, they would speak of indigenous people. And, you know, in the States, how they would speak of, of black folks that they enslaved, right? Like I, I think these things are connected. Um, the way we speak about our bodies and our emotions, if we think that we need to dominate over them and control them, we're, 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 we learn that from the same handbook, okay? It's the same handbook about dominance and control and, and, and lack of trust in our innate goodness. 
And I think it's a, I really just am going to name, I think it's a tool of colonialism. I think it's a tool of white supremacy. I think it's a tool of patriarchy. I think maybe these might all be named, different names for the same idea, which is just like, you can't be trusted as a human. You can't trust yourself. You have to trust me instead, this person in power and authority over you. I know better than you what is good for you. I know better than you what you can and can't trust about yourself. It's one of the sort of the basic ideas of it, right? And the thing that that does is it separates us from our own centers of like wisdom and knowing and knowledge and power. And that's on purpose because if we don't realize that we are powerful, we are more easily manipulated and controlled. Um, and so taking back the power of understanding your emotions and knowing that as a piece of you, as a human being in a human body, they are good and they are in service of you and they are to take care of you. That's sort of that first step of like kind of decolonizing your opinion about your emotions almost, right? And what that does is it allows you to meet your emotions as they are perfectly designed to offer the signals they offer to you. And once you move through the emotions, what you get is clarity and calm and creativity to think deeply and resourcefully about the huge complex problems that our society faces and take action that feels like aligned with you as a human being and your values um, and show up and not beat yourself up the whole time, right? So I, I just did a whole bunch of talking about the thing and I actually started doing my own processing, which I don't know, am I avoiding it? Who knows? I just think, so when I was listening to these incredible stories of these two incredible women, um, stories that include like young children dying in residential schools, you know, women, possibly murdered, like dying and just like really, really painful things that like literally happened to these, to these humans' families, you know? I felt so many emotions at once. And so my practice that I find useful, especially if I'm, if I'm just listening anyway, is sort of writing down what I, what thoughts are coming up for me, what emotions are there. And I mean, it's, it first just hit, hit me like a wall of pain just the pain, the pain of those humans going through those things. A story of a young child escaping residential school and not all of those children surviving. I am tearful now thinking of it because it's not something that should happen. Excuse me, or not excuse me, here I am having emotions, you know? It's not something that should happen to anyone, much less a child. And that happened this country. That happened a lot in this country. You know, one of the facts shared was there was a point where the medical officer of health of Canada was raising an alarm because noticing that more than 50% of the children that were going into residential schools were dying there. That's, and that was a fact that wasn't immediately reconciled at that time. And the pain of that, 
just the pain of the suffering and the loss in these real human families. And so just witnessing that pain and feeling it as another human person and as a mother. We get shamed about feeling pain. We get shamed about crying. But it's so important. It's important to acknowledge and and understand we have deep capacity to hold the sadness we can. It won't consume us if we do. In fact, it consumes us and, and separates us from ourselves when we think we can't hold that grief. We don't do it alone, of course. We do it in we can do it through sharing with others, but like we can hold that pain. And it doesn't stay forever when when we just leave, like I picture myself like I picture, you know, like hot lava of grief flowing into me. And before I would feel like I had to resist it. And so then instead it would kind of like spurt back out and overflow everywhere. And then that's when I would get defensive or avoidant or whatever. But now I like literally just picture like opening up space inside of me and, and, and understanding I am large inside. I have capacity to hold just for now, just for this minute, I can witness as much as I, I feel capable, I can create a little more space for this grief this time. I can. I can, and I, and I show myself that I can by trying and doing it and realizing that I don't die when I fully feel the grief of others. It doesn't consume me. In fact, it connects me with them. And it connects me deeper with strength the strength of witnessing. These are the ancestors of the people who experience that suffering. Witnessing the incredible strength that never should have needed to be tapped into by an 11-year-old boy or whatever, right? And if I allow that grief to flow through me, and I just picture it like this balloon, Picture your insides like a balloon opening and opening and just receiving the ouch, the hot lava, like whatever metaphor works for you. But literally picture that you have space in there. You have space in there. I don't know if you know that, but you do too. I have it and so do you. And then what happens when you've created all that space is then it does cool. The grief cools. It doesn't you know, turn into like happiness that it happens. It just cools down and is there and it forms this bedrock of further connection with yourself as a human and with these other incredible, beautiful humans who never should have experienced what they did. And I feel it now. You can hear my tearfulness, but I know it won't consume me all day because I know the biggest thing is I know I am capable of holding space for this wave of grief, and I know it won't stay forever when I do, because those are the lies, those are the lies we've been sold about emotions, that you will be overcome and overwhelmed and they are dangerous. But remember, your emotions are signals. This signal is saying, there is pain here, there is loss here. When we feel grief, it is about loss it is about either personally experiencing or witnessing the loss of someone's life or energy or, or nourishment. The signal is to say, oh, we've lost a resource. 
Are we going to be okay? Like that is the purpose of sadness and grief. Something is lost. Lost. Are we okay? Like think of it like if suddenly your crop died and it's like, oh, will we have enough food for the winter? There's a kind of grief with that. And that, and for us as humans, each other and our connection with each other is so essential for our survival historically and even now. And so when we see humans being lost, it is natural and normal to say, oh, are we going to be okay? That's, that's on purpose. And that connects us back to them. If we don't think that it will overwhelm us or that we have to push it away or separate ourselves from it. If we think it's contagious in a way that means that, I don't know, something bad will happen to us, you know? And so beyond the grief, those are, the grief I think is, you could say the clean pain, the clean emotion that I don't have to shift or do anything with because I witness it and it's there and it's true. That is the truest reaction I have when I hear the stories that come with truth and, truth and reconciliation. It is just a clean, pure, beautiful emotion that connects me. But if when you listen to those stories, you do feel some of that grief, but then almost immediately you feel these other emotions. They call them inhibitory emotions, right? And I have really come to believe these are the emotions that really reveal our internalized oppression, our internalized colonialism, our internalized white supremacy, da, 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 all down the line. There's like emotions like the kind of anxiety that keeps you from grief. So if it's like, I can't handle feeling this sad, I don't think I'll survive. I'm worried about feeling this sad. What can I do? What can I, how can I take action to avoid feeling this grief? Because I can't handle this grief. I wonder if you can see the lie, which is that you can't handle the grief. Who told you that? Who told you you can't handle the grief? That person maybe thought they were being well-meaning, and it's usually not just one person. It's like all of us collectively. Oh my gosh, are you okay? Oh, I can't, I can't stand to see you sad. Are you okay? Are, I don't think you're going to be okay. Right? When we do this to each other, and then it's like, oh my gosh, am I okay? I don't think I'm going to be okay. How can I possibly handle? Right? You don't have to judge if we're really panicked and anxious and overwhelmed when we try and feel the grief that comes with witnessing, like, you know, horrendous loss. But it's, I just want to point out that it is a lie that we as humans have deep sources of strength and especially in genuine connection and trusting connection with each other, but trusting also in ourselves. Self-trust is the opposite of this kind of inhibitory anxiety that says, I can't handle feeling my feelings. I can't trust myself to feel my feelings. I can't trust myself to know the right answer for myself. I can't trust myself to take action unless it's perfect and without blame and without um, that will be impermeable to the judgment of others. All of that is internalized oppression because it says you can't trust yourself. And I can recognize that now. And I, I, if you're listening, notice if that happens in you and just know that is not you. That is a message, a, a series and 
a series of messages you have been delivered over time that has left you with less trust in yourself than is the truth of you. And that is therefore an invitation and a process of reconnecting and building back trust in yourself. And that I would say would be for you maybe your first step in reconciliation. When we reconcile with our own selves and understand that we personally are deeply trustworthy and deeply capable and resourceful, we are. The collective we, which includes you, the person who's listening to this, and me. That means that we are so much more resourced than to say, okay, I trust myself. I know I can handle listening to this story and really thinking about it deeply. And I know I can think creatively. I know I'm not going to solve this whole thing tomorrow. But I know that there's work that I can do and I trust myself to do it. And if instead of anxiety, you feel more guilt or shame, I'm just going to pause for a minute here because I've actually driven all the way to work and I just need to um, get my parking pass. <laughs> I wonder if any of you guys picture me like holding a microphone and driving into work when I do these ones. I actually usually edit out uh, a point where <laughs> I reached my parking gate. I don't think I'm going to edit it out because I just want to put this out after I park. Um, anyways, diving back into deep emotional emotions after a, a, a brief commercial break for me to uh, get into a parking garage. So we talked about the the kind of anxiety that is internalized depression that keeps you from trusting yourself. And the other big, big heavy one that I'm I'm not sure are actually different, to be honest. Um, sometimes people feel it as guilt. Sometimes people feel it as shame, that sort of sinking, sick feeling where you're like, oh, my gosh, what is wrong with me that I haven't done anything yet? Or what is wrong with us collectively? Maybe just humans are terrible. And we think maybe this is helpful. We're just like, I'm going to now just like beat myself up. What's wrong with me? I never even knew my white privilege. I need to learn all about my white or, you know, colonial or what settler, like, and just like learn all about it and just beat myself up to a pulp, right? Um, and it's actually usually out of that point that then we get defensive because the thing is, psychologically and biologically, we do have a deep belief in our goodness, which is a good thing. Because otherwise, like, I know our kidneys don't actually have a brain or like, you're a good person. That's why I'm filtering your urine. But like, if you just think about it biologically, like our, all of our cells are designed for our own survival and flourishing. So it just doesn't sit right for us to think that we are terrible people. So that's when we get defensive or check out. In fact, I would say this, this shame where we, we witness what happened to other people and we start to make connections with our place and our participation in a system and how we have benefited ourselves or ancestors um, have benefited from that system. And even, you know, when we start to hear some of the stories and they talk about how what you can do and we think about that and then we worry about that or we're not sure how we'll do it. And then we feel so guilty and shameful. We have that hot, like 
heavy, heavy weight that just like, for me, it just sinks into my gut, this like guilt, shame combination. And that I think is the main, honestly, I think that's the crux of why people don't take action and get defensive. And then, I mean, I won't get too far into some people really go all the way and make it their identity to be against truth and reconciliation. Um, others, it's just sort of like, well, I just don't really understand. Or it's like, I can't handle this. I'm going to avoid it. Right. Like those are, I believe my hypothesis is those are because they, they are underneath thinking that if they are, if they acknowledge the truth of what happens, then what they're acknowledging is their own badness that they, as a human person, their cells are toxic because that's what the emotion of shame tells us is like, it's a self, it's, it's a self focused disgust reaction, right? We all have the disgust reaction. You know, if you eat something um, bitter or if you eat something that's uh, spoiled, the disgust reaction, right? Or if you're around something that's, um, that's going to make you sick, right? Like that disgust reaction is actually very important. You know, that's what made you, makes you spit out the poisonous berry. You know, like it's got a really important process to be like, oh, my gosh, there's I, there's something inside of me that is that is hurting me, is making me sick that I need to, like, purge. And so shame says that that it's not something inside of us. It is us. I am bad. I am not enough. I am toxic to other people. Right. You know, you can see how that is not a message that someone can just sit with and it well and when people just learn to sit with it and believe it i mean that's one way to describe depression right um but just to say that whole belief system is i think the reason then why people have these other defensive reactions because it's too painful to believe that you are toxic and i just want to name that it is understandable if that is your reaction when you hear about like the horrors of history and the horrors of now and what is happening still to indigenous people and, you know, all sorts of people all over the world. It's, it's understandable. Did I just say it's natural? I didn't mean it's natural. And like, it's natural because we live in a world that wants us to believe we are bad. This is another source of internalized oppression. I would say shame and this kind of shame guilt thing is the true reflection of our internalized oppression. You know, the, and when I mean internalized oppression, I'm, oh dear, I'm going to butcher the quote and I don't remember who said it, but there's this idea of like the, the greatest tool um, in the hands of the oppressor is the, the, um, the mind of the oppressed. So say you need a group of people to do something that, um, you know, deep down everyone kind of knows is wrong and horrific and shouldn't be done. If you make those people question themselves, if you say that, you know, at your core, you are not to be trusted, you are a bad person unless you do X, Y, Z to prove your worth. Now you don't even have to you know, put them in jail if they don't do it. You've, you've, you've put the jail inside their brains. I don't know if this is too abstract. I, but I like, I'm, what's the name? I don't know any kind of example, like something out 
well, like the perfectionism example, right? So like, say, so say you witness a, a story for truth and reconciliation, you feel the grief and you do have, they suggest an idea for you. Why don't you try a land acknowledgement? Why don't you try donating? I don't know, whatever. And if, and, but you feel so overwhelmed because you, you think, well, who am I? Who am I to do something? I don't know the right thing to do. I'm going to get it wrong. All of those are a shame message because all of those say, first of all, you can't trust yourself, but that there is a right way to do it. And if you get it wrong, you're bad. It actually is already letting you know you're bad to begin with. You're already bad. You're already behind. You're already like making up. You, you got to like make up for all of the the badness you've already done. And um, you're a piece of garbage and a and, uh, piece of crap and, you know, all those things. Like we when we like beat ourselves up that way. None of that is your innate human wiring. All of that was given to you. Okay. I just want to say that even just like that. So you like shame is always a false alarm. It is never true that you are inherently bad, disgusting. A lot of actions that humans take are bad and disgusting, to be clear. But them on a cellular level, me and you on a cellular level are not bad and disgusting. And the forces that have made us question this and say, well, the only way you can prove you're not bad and disgusting is to be perfect. The only way you can prove you're not bad and disgusting is to find the exact right way to solve this complex puzzle of how we live as humans in a way that isn't destructive to someone, right? It's actually all on you. It's your fault if you don't get it. Like, do you kind of see how that, first of all, is not serving you and not helpful and you didn't come up with those stories yourself those were conditioned into you over time to make you always think it was better to defer to someone else to make you always think it was better to wait for someone else to go and what it really cuts you off from is your own power creativity compassion that is that is that is your innate state that is your authentic self are those things. When you are not thinking that your survival is on the line from the judgment of others or from getting it wrong, and when you just walk forward knowing I can trust myself, I can trust any feeling that comes my way. And these feelings don't make me bad. These feelings make me human. When I feel grief, that's good. That's fine. That makes sense. That's the clean pain beating yourself up after that's the dirty pain. Now, you know, using this as a way to say that you can't trust yourself further, that's dirty pain. And those are the lies of internalized depression. So when I witnessed those stories yesterday, I felt that clean grief and I processed it. And then I would notice from time to time the flutters come up of shame it often comes up as sort of defensiveness because our, our bodies are not good at actually just like believing shame for that long, or at least mine isn't at this point. And so it's like, yeah, but what about, oh, but I am kind of proud of being Canadian. 
da 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 like whatever comes up I don't then have to say look this means that I'm bad or I'm you know not a true believer in the cause or something you know some puritanical way of viewing social justice frankly I'm I just put them I actually like made a list so I was like internalized oppression and I put them down knowing that that's where that's what was happening makes sense they're in there because I've been swimming in this oppressive society that wants me to believe that Indigenous people can't fully be trusted, right? Once you believe that maybe the problem's really theirs, right? So it's like, okay, if those thoughts are swimming in me, I know where they came from. They're not my innate thoughts. I can write them down. And then just return back to the grief, which is, is real. And then through the grief, then I can really think, okay, so if I trusted in my innate goodness, if I trusted in my... Um, if I trusted in myself and knew that my worthiness as a human is not on the line and I'm witnessing this pain and suffering that has happened and is continuing to happen, what do I want to do next? And so one of my things was I want to process this pain and record a podcast and put it out there. And like, what else? So for me, I will share with you my current reconciliation actions and it's not a complete list and it's not going to be the same as yours but um, I want to share really what I am committed to uh, uh, thinking about tomorrow so the first is continuing to do this work that I do because I do believe this work is anti-oppression work revealing our inhuman stories like inhuman stories is just another it's like a term I made up for oppressive stories, the stories of white supremacy, the stories of toxic capitalism, like those are other kind of fancy names for them, but it's just the stories that say you can't trust yourself, the stories that keep you from your innate goodness. So I'm going to keep doing this work because I believe in it strongly and I believe in its power to really transform and, and, and change people. Um, and that out of that change, um, the healthcare system will get less oppressive. I believe if more humans really knew their innate worth and goodness, it would help them feel better. It would help you listening literally feel better, literally enjoy your job more. And from that place, I believe then the actions you would take would actually just inherently be less oppressive, honestly. And if you, you were confronted with an action that someone found harmful you would then have the capacity to really consider it without making it mean anything about you and you would change. I just believe in that very fully. So that's one of the commitments I have with my own patients. I am really committed to decolonizing the patient doctor relationship and really making it like a, a bi-directional shared power relationship. And um, the benefit of that meaning that I am healed along with them. I am there in service to them, but I have noticed that as I start to stop feeling like I have to know better than my patients, which was a common theme in the stories yesterday of um, family members encountering parts of the healthcare system and, you know, the healthcare workers being like, oh, we better take away your baby because you won't know what to do with it. Like stories like that. Really recognizing where that still exists in me, where I think I know better. And instead, just doing a lot more listening and honoring my patient's power and right to self-determination and just believing that more fully every day 
and having and just making space for that as well as just making space for all of the things that are unknown about how the human body works and that that it's okay to have mystery in the room I can share what I know and then they can share what they know and we can co-create something together I'm going to talk more about this on next week's podcast actually if that piece of it interests you um and then specifically um in terms of work with like indigenous peoples um I want to continue to offer land acknowledgements in the work that I do um, in my education series. I want to I want to make them not token but meaningful and can and continue to use those as a way to like recommit myself to this work. Um, patients of mine that are indigenous, I I want to just even more f- further bring the work I'm doing to them in particular. And um, yeah, and then I'm going to, and then my last thing is I'm going to keep my eyes and ears open because I think I want to be further connected to work already being done in my local community and in, in Canada, just in general. And I would like to really make sure I'm offering, whether it's time, energy, or money to the organizations that are doing this work further, um, including, yeah, monetarily. So I, I, I want to really be open to that and commit um, in real ways to, to those as well. So those are my reconciliation commitments. Um, man, this one ended up being long. Thanks if you're still listening. <laughs> um, yeah. So just to have some takeaways at the end, the, the, the fact the facts of what have happened to indigenous peoples in this particular land, but also just in lands like around the globe, you know, um, are facts, period. And confronting that truth can bring up a lot of emotions. And it's my belief that this is the critical step that often stops people from taking action that's aligned with their values because they don't know how to process it. And so I hope me sort of sharing, you know, the clean pain, the clean emotions. I don't mean I don't mean clean in some supremacist way. I mean just uh, I mean the 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 genuine, authentic human emotion of witnessing someone's pain and feeling it yourself. Know that you have capacity to feel it all the way through, and it won't overwhelm you. And you can trust yourself. You can trust yourself, and by practicing trust, that will help to ease that inhibitory anxiety and practice understanding and knowing your own goodness and offering yourself compassion out of that place of goodness and, and, and seeking compassion of others as a way to bolster your feeling of goodness. Cause that's how I think shame dissipates. It's practicing knowledge of your goodness, offering yourself self-compassion out of that place. And then because that can be very challenging when you've been, you know, brainwashed your whole life to not believe in your own innate goodness, reaching out to others for support. And I'm happy to be that person if you want to reach out to me. Okay. That's kind of secretly what all my coaching work is, frankly. So, um, yeah, I invite you to really consider that step, that step of processing and, and welcoming and understanding you as a human being in a human body, having human emotions. Because I believe out of that place, when that 
when you are in line with understanding what is happening in your brain and body, then you are going to have so many different incredible ideas and feel the space and time of trying one at a time and and taking real aligned action towards reconciliation, which is the, the call. That's the call to action for all of us. And, and of course, especially those of us who uh, are of settler ancestry. Right. So um, I hope this was helpful for you. If nothing else, it was helpful for me. And um, I'll see you next time. Take care. I would love to hear from you. Please share your human moments in medicine with me on Instagram at joanchanmd or on my website, joanchanmd.com. On my website, you can also find other restorative medical education offerings I have, including one-on-one coaching opportunities and skill-building workshops. I look forward to connecting with you there. Thank you.